Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. On the planet. With your host, Paul Murphy, and expert coach, Nick Nanavati. Hello and welcome to an episode of the Out of War Podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Nanavati. What up, what up, everybody? How's it going? And today we're also joined by Josh Roberts. Hi, guys. How are you? Josh, we're going to talk a little bit about where you're from, what you're doing, and what you played most recently at the Goonhammer Open. But first, I want to let folks know that this is part one of a two-part episode. You can find more about that on the Art of War webpage. And we sincerely appreciate y'all joining us for both parts of the conversations, if you can. Josh, you most recently, at least we're talking about uh, what you played at the Goonhammer Open, and that was Harlequins. Uh, let us know yes. a little bit about yourself and how you did. Yeah, so I mean, I've been playing 40k for a long time now, and I'm involved in the Team England side for the WTC. I'm the captain there, and I've played a lot of lists between myself and my brother. We've been playing for 20 years, and I think we have almost every army between us, so flit around from different armies, depending on what I want to use. I wanted to give Harleys a go, partly for myself to play them, because I enjoy that play style with the movement, the, the way it plays, but also from a team perspective we've got to make a decision about uh, at the WTC you're only allowed Harleys or Eldar you can't run both uh, because they're within the same codex so we've been testing different versions to see which we prefer Manny who's on our team has been playing a lot of Eldar recently and so I said I'd try the Harleys as well in a setting to see if we had any preferences which way we prefer to go for the team loadout team environments are their their own animal that is for sure and a lot of them do favor or seem to kind of go down the route of you know only one codex represented per team and there's like a different scope of how competition comes together for that but how did you feel with the harlequins going into like the open environment yeah so i mean for the open environment i mean i think i'm sure you guys have covered it on your podcast before when the book came out pre the balance update the harlequins were just dominating i mean the the void weaver lists were winning what was it 80 plus percent of their games or something like that i think it was the percentages and it was even higher percentages if you took out the mirror matches where they had to play each other so harleys were clear clearly the top of the meta. And I decided actually not to play them. I didn't take them to any events when they were at that level because I, I thought you saw that and you thought, okay, this is clearly, it's been missed here. There's going to be a, a points change or a, a rules change somewhere to adapt to this. Now the Harleys have had that in the balance update. They addressed the Void Weavers with the points and they've changed a number of their abilities such as the minus range and a few of the other interactions with Warlord traits, etc., which were arguably oppressive. So since then, I think they're now in a pretty good place from a singles point of view. They're still right at the top of the meta, I'd, I'd say, but they're not clearly dominant where they were. And of course, since that update, then Eldar probably flew under the radar because Harleys are in the same book and they were seen as the top so Eldar didn't really get touched in the balance update and new Tyranids came out since then so I'd say Harleys are competitive with them but probably just below those two when it comes to where they sit in the, the current meta if you will for singles I think that's reflected as well in, in the stats based on like the meta Mondays that the, that's on for competitive 40k's Reddit page or that we do in the war room over here that we analyze with your Harlequins though one of the questions I asked you when I was uh, asking if you would be gracious enough to come on our show and I was like did you do well with nine void weavers having not checked out your list yet just to make it sure and then you were like no i'm not running any so last time we had arlequins on it was the winner of a who of course took the nine void weavers and now we have 
you, Josh, is running Harlequins with no Void Weavers. So it's it's obviously a very different direction, diff- very different army. What was your list, you know, if you want to go through it? Yeah, so, I mean, the list was a battalion and a patrol, um, and it's fairly straightforward. I've got two Shadow Seers, uh, standard, no no upgrades now, whether you, you used to take the minus six-inch range, etc. I don't take that anymore because of the way the list works. So two basic Shadow Seers, uh, Troop Master, Warlord, the the rows the extra movement the, the extra attack so the he's got double warlord traits the the standard i think that most people still run if you're running light which is what i was running nine units of five troop uh, seven are identical in that they had two fusions two neuros and two combat weapons the last two units still had all the pistols just without the combat weapons then i had a solitaire and then eight of the transports wow that's a very compact list you use like three different data sheets in there Care- Characters, Void Weaver, true. So with this army, I'm looking at it. I'm trying to envision how it plays on a tabletop, right? You got these eight transports transporting 45 troops, pretty much loaded out with different weapons and weird characters. And it's so fast and it can be all over the board and you can play at whatever tempo and pace you want to play. So how, where do you even start? How do you come up and with that? And how do you play this army? Yeah. So, I mean, I looked at the Harleys post the balance update. The, the Void Weavers went from being very cheap to probably the they are probably about right, but if you if you take nine now, which you could still do, and actually one of the guys I played against took six at the weekend, so he was still down that route, not as many as the full nine before, but I think basically to make his list fit, he ran exactly the same list as he ran when he had nine. He had to lose three to fit in his new army, so he pretty much didn't change his list. But I looked at it and went, I don't think where Tyranids are, where Eldar are, I'm not sold that the Void Weavers now are viable. Maybe one unit could be viable or maybe singles, but I thought I wanted to play the Harleys more as a gone for nine troop units. So I've got nine obsec options. As you said, everything's fast. I've got no big units to for things like Eldar, which love Doom and other abilities. I've got nothing that's obviously targetable for things like that. The same with like the the fly tyrant in Nids, who does the who has the Reaper, who does all those mortal wounds and just deletes big units. I haven't got any big juicy targets for him to just go and delete. So there's, I tried to play it more as a MSU, very fast, lots of options. And then I could play the primary very well. I can sacrifice some of my troops to deny primary if I need to and keep enough troops left that I'm still scoring my own. Uh, same with the transports. If I need to just throw an empty transport onto into a quarter or into an, onto an objective, I can do that. And I don't feel like I'm losing too much strength from the list. And that's really how I wanted to play the army. And then, of course, also looking at the the secondary options by not taking the Void Weavers. If I need to take to the last in my list, for example, the two Shadow Seers and the Solitaire end up being my to the last. Well, the Shadow Seers are generally quite well protected when they're surrounded by loads of transports. And if I need to just use the Solitaire defensively and he's just counterpunch, and again, he's a character surrounded by boats, it doesn't cost me too much to play that option. And we'll then, definitely talk uh, about the, the secondaries yeah, later sure. on in the episode. And then it just the way the list was designed, like like you said, Nick, was to have all those all the speed and all the options to play multiple secondaries if I needed to, engage on multiple fronts if I needed to, or completely redeploy 
to one side or the other, depending on what my opponent was using. If we were having this conversation a few months ago, people were like, well, of course Harlequins are good. Everyone knows they're great. And, but now it's a different environment now. And I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, how are you finding this fares, you know, out there with the Tyranids and the Tau and, you know, different terrain setups and, and things like that? Well, I want to keep the match of specific talks for part two. And I know a lot of this, this episode can totally be about like tactical things you do in the matches because your army is so nimble and able to play specific scenarios so well. But yeah, I mean, Harlequins do have a variety of different threats and they are just toughness three. So like, how do you even survive against the devastating output of those armies like what Paul's getting at? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the transports themselves are still very durable. When you're in light, if you're over 12 inches away, you can't hit them on better than fours. You're not allowed to re-roll to hit against them. You've got the the luck dice for your re-rolls, especially with a four up in bun that ties in quite nicely. So you can actually, I think the boats are still very durable, even into a lot of matchups. Mortal Wounds is a problem, and that is something you have to play around because the Mortal Wounds negates your hit, sorry, sorry bypasses your, your hit uh, benefits that your, your opponent is losing out on the hits. They don't have to hit roll to hit for generally most Mortal Wound options. And the 4 plus invun on all the boats, of course, is also being ignored as well. So in the Mortal Wounds is a problem. But outside of that, even for Nids with their heavy Venom cannons and their other options, things like the Tyrants not hitting on twos, they're hitting on fours, no rerolls allowed. The same with the Harpies, etc. It at least helps. And the five-man Harley troops are very small footprint. So I tended to find as long as you played them cleverly and carefully, when boats are destroyed, you can get out behind terrain, you can minimize the return and at least get to use your unit before they just get wiped out. But yes, for sure, the thing to worry about with anything like Harleys is, as you said, their toughness three, they have a four pin bun, but that doesn't go very far if they're getting hit by anything significant. So you do have to be mindful about how you're placing them and where you're going to go with those units and, and thinking about, okay, well, I've got to make sure they're not super cheap, those units, they're working out at 95 points a unit. So they're not a cheap trade, not like, say, a 45-point rack unit for Dark Eldar, for example, which can do a similar job from a scoring perspective. So you do have to be mindful about how you use them. I know you mentioned earlier that as a team deciding if you want to play Eldar, if you want to play Harlequins, what direction you want to go to, and you're testing two different ideas. I think that's awesome. When you look at your Harlequin list, I, I think it's an army that's designed to just play the mission vehemently, you know, destroy people's primaries by throwing obsec around onto them, make sure it's really good at its own primaries and secondaries. And like Paul said earlier, we'll get to your secondaries in just a bit. But why, why Harlequins for this play style? Like when you say things like you're paying 95 points for five troops instead of 45 for five racks, Dark Eldar do this so much like cheaper for the same idea, no? I think they do, but, so, but the difference I found, because I've been playing a lot of Dark Eldar as well recently, and again, I think Dark Eldar are an interesting one in that when they first came out, they were right at the top of the meta. I mean, they had the the liquefiers and they were just bonkers, and then they've, they've had Dark Eldar have now gone through how many iterations with, they changed the liquefiers, then they hit them again, then they made the Coven stuff a lot cheaper and everybody was all on the Talos and Grotesques. Now they've reduced the the strength eight doesn't work against them anymore. So they, the Dark Eldar adapted throughout and they're still they're still great at playing that game. But I think the difference that the Harlequins give that the others don't is one, they're, as I said, the boats are so much more durable than a lot of the other transport options that others have. Like Venoms are okay from defensive point of view, but uh, you compare a Venom to a, a Star Weaver and the durability difference is so big, especially when you start factoring in that uh, those Harlequin rerolls you're getting for being pure Harlequins. That just changes the way that you can move those about and use them. And then I think the other option is where Dark Eldar often really struggle is a lot of their damage output is now combat orientated. The shooting for Dark Eldar struggles generally, I find. Whereas for the Harleys, especially when you go light, being able to go 22 with your boats, still fire your pistols at full effectiveness, that actually means that combined with the speed, it's actually less of a combat army. It's 
more of a shooting army and the shooting is quite effective as long as you know how to gauge where you want to go and thinking about how your opponents can react. They give you a slightly different option to something like the cheap obsec that people just throw out but generally don't do anything. The Harley troops can play twofold. They actually do have damage output as well as being able to play nine obsec units at the same time. So that's what I wanted to test. I think it was an obvious build for Harleys when the Void Weavers were so strong. Now they're gone. You can argue Eldar are possibly stronger, but as a team, we don't like to rule out anything just purely on Theory Hammer because that will inevitably come and bite you when you get to the event and then you go, why are all these other teams running this list that we discounted? Because they've clearly tested it more and said, actually, that works better in this format. So from us, we said, well, let's let's try both and make sure that we're not missing a trick. I love the approach, I think. Yeah, leave no stone unturned. Um, I also really like the, the breakdown and to give you the little strengths and weaknesses of the troops you've really put thought into it and there's real methodologies to what you're doing one thing i noticed you said is your harlequins kind of shoot people more than they punch people it's really a shooting army and you use your void reavers aggressively almost it sounds like to really get angles and fire those fusion pistols as neurodestructors got a couple questions for you First, what is a Neuro Disruptor for the class? And then two, how is Harlequins a shooting army? When did this happen? I know the Void Weavers got nerfed, so I kind of thought that was the end of that. First, to answer your question on the pistols. So I think everybody knows what a fusion pistol is now, and they're great in their respect, but they do only have that six-inch range. But with the with the Neuros, they are a 12-inch range pistol, so you've got a little bit more threat range, which actually does tie in quite nicely because you can, you can use your boats, put everything in range with, say, a, a primary target within six inches, but then you can line up your Neuros to be hitting something slightly further away. So it gives you sort of a dual threat range rather than just that one one threat option. And then what Neuros do, not against vehicles. So against vehicles, they're just strength six, minus three, one damage. But against any other targets, you roll to hit and they do a mortal wound. So it's just a way of adding mortal wounds into the into the list at a range, which is nice into those Tyranid Monstrous creatures, things like Malceptors, which have that four up invun, Tyrants, again, who have four up invuns, which, which are fusions. We all know four up invuns can either be they should be 50% of the time, but sometimes you, whenever you play in game, it always seems to feel like either people pass, no, no, they're four ups, or they pass nine out of 10, eight Wait. out of 10, and you Wait, don't why get is that, Why is that, Nick? Fours are fickle. Fours are fickle, man. Fours are fickle, yeah. That, that, I agree with that completely. So the neuros just help give me another way of doing damage that can be not as devastating as a fusion, because of course a fusion can do up to eight damage from one shot, depending on if you if you roll well. But the mortal consistency is quite a nice way, especially when you if you've also been doing some mortals from two Shadow Seers in the psychic phase, you can actually start doing quite a lot of mortals throughout the game as well, which gives you different options to tackle certain units. That's really cool. So how often do you find yourself just, and maybe this is matchup dependent, do you ever just jam yourself up there and just totally run at someone and shoot them in the face with everything and go for like a, a very aggressive approach, or do you usually play this army KG and peace trade and select opportunities of striking? I think it depends on the matchup and it depends on the deployment type as well. So particularly, I think actually you'll f- I find with this list, hammer and anvil setups are probably the worst for it or the hardest because you 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 te- you feel like you're funneled. So if you want to engage, you tend to find that actually your opponent's army is quite clustered. So you can't pick on a flank in, in the same way. So that actually makes it quite hard. That's probably the worst deployment for it as a, as a list, I would say. But generally, it depends on your opponent. So sometimes you're going to be trading and playing the mission. And then other times you tend to find that if you can pick on flanks, you can overwhelm a flank and then use your durability to stay around. And then because you're so fast and redeploy, either you can redeploy to a different area to then hit another unit, or if you're too worried about being overwhelmed because of your speed, you can always redeploy backwards onto other objectives and play that range game again if you need to. So because of that speed, I find you can play it quite well. 
it's just hammer and anvil you can be caught out with because it's you don't get the same flanking options that you do in the other deployments yeah hammer is the one where it's it's long ways across the table so your opponent's army is pretty much just directly in front of you and vice versa it's very hard to surround them in that style and that's i think something your army wants to do yeah and there's a number of armies that as you say they they, they can just pretty much fill the full width of the table because they're only having to fill the short edge rather than the, the long edge and the threat ranges of all their units means that they can hit even if you attack one corner the units on the other side can still hit you whereas if it's some of the other deployments you can actually avoid that quite well so that is that is definitely the the hardest deployment and that probably forces you to play a cagier trading game in that sort of layout unless you can tempt your opponent to push down a certain flank and then you can start swinging around but that's that's one of the the advantages the list had is that because of that speed you could redeploy quite quickly if you needed to the speed is one of the most interesting things to the game because speed and fragile units are very they can be used as glass cannons and hit super hard right where it hurts they can be used to reposition a unit that is otherwise out of position very effectively you know if you're in the middle of nowhere with a unit that moves six you're just in the middle of nowhere in the move, middle of nowhere with a unit that moves 22 you're back in the game next turn so with speed comes a lot of playing at your own pace and you know setting the tempo of the game do you find that you often tell your opponent or kind of project like all your crazy maneuverability and threat ranges and then your opponent may be overwhelmed by your capabilities and maybe get overly defensive which gives you opportunity i think uh, sometimes yes i mean somebody who particularly if they've not played an army that has that much mobility sometimes i mean the amount of times when you deploy people ask you and it's a common question i'm sure most people have heard this across the table what's your threat range of this unit or that unit and that is always a common question and then as you start talking about well i can move 22 and still fire or the troop master again his sort of threat range is something that people ask you about and then as soon as they ask you about often will deploy further back from him and sometimes they've de- they've changed they've moved a unit you go well i wouldn't throw my troop master into that unit anyway it's not it's not a viable trade for me but in their head they're thinking oh i don't want him to hit here i need to reposition this so if for certain i think when you have such large you know, such large redeployment options it does mess with people's deployment plans and how they think and it can force people to be more defensive than sometimes they need to be which only plays in your favor particularly with being with the the eldar codex allowing you to to, to redeploy units as well through their stratagems, that then also messes with your opponents because then they think, oh, well, actually, he could be on the line and then move 22 with a number of units. So I have to think about that. Um, and that definitely does make them make them second-guess themselves sometimes. It's getting to the time where we need to talk about how to actually score points on the table outside of the primary. We'll talk about the secondaries. But before we do that, I kind of also want to bring up the fact that you're based in Nottingham. You know, what's it like you know, playing in kind of like the home of Warhammer? What's the scene like? I mean, there are routine 100-person tournaments around there, but what it's like the, the the feel of the competitive environment over there. So, it, it, well, it's an interesting one, actually. So it used to be Nottingham was the mecca for big tournaments. It was the place to come to. So when Games Workshop used to run their grand tournaments and they used to have a heat qualifying system, so they had three heats, you had to qualify for the final. That was the, they were the biggest events in the UK. They were the ones that everybody wanted to win. Winning a heat was nice, but winning the final, that was the, if you said that would be the pinnacle of competitive 40k at, the, at that time. Uh, this was really before the WTC was a big thing. And I don't think some of the American events were as big as they are now at this at this point. So while it was maybe a 150-man event for the final, a lot of people thought, well, it's it's 150-man for every heat, and then I've got to come within the top 50 of each heat to qualify for the final, and then I get to play in the final. They were regarded as the premier event. And 
Warhammer World used to let their venue be used by third-party events as well, so people would have somebody like the, the guys at Goonhammer could have used Warhammer World in the past to host their event, which now is not an option. Games Workshop just run their own events there. So for a while, Nottingham was definitely the mecca of events. Then Games Workshop changed their event policy and how they wanted to handle events. They stopped the grand tournaments. Then for a while, Nottingham was lacking in events. There was no real events here. A lot of the events went independent and moved elsewhere to wherever those people were based locally. So London took some, there might have been some in Manchester, because Nottingham is, for, for your listeners who are maybe not UK based, as a city, Nottingham is one of the smaller cities in the UK. I mean, there's there's plenty of cities much bigger than, than Nottingham. I mean, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, London, of course, would all attract bigger events more comfortably. But Warhammer World and GW being here was originally the reason why Nottingham was the big event. And that went quiet for a while. But now Games Workshop are re-engaging with the community and, and events. I mean, I've seen they're doing all the, their open events in the US as well. They've got, they're running bigger events back in Warhammer World again now here as well. And organizers, independents like Goonhammer are running, I think they've run two 100 plus player man events now in Nottingham. And Zach, who does all the UK GT scene, he's run at least one, I think maybe two Nottingham events now. Again, I think his are two or three hundred man events in Nottingham. So the the scene is booming again now, but it did actually go through a period where Nottingham went very quiet for maybe four or five years. Yeah, you see, we, we look at tournaments to see some of the, the best players in the region. You know, we'll care, we'll find a way to get to the tournaments no matter where they are, but it's uh, just kind of neat uh, to be playing there in the, in the home of Warhammer. So Josh, I love that you have been through so much history of Warhammer, right? The heats are something I literally forgot even existed. It's been so long. You said you've been playing for, for quite some time and you've been the captain of England for a number of years too. How long have you been doing this and, and how did you get so deeply involved in the game? Yeah, so from, I mean, my side, I mean, I started when I was 12. So interestingly, it wasn't 40K that got me into it. I walked past a local Games Workshop store. They had, I just watched the third Lord of the Rings movie. They had all the banners for Lord of the Rings miniatures in. I thought, that looks cool. I'll try that. I tried that game. I hated it. But then I saw the sci-fi game and I'd always been a big sci-fi fan from things like Star Wars and others. And I went, oh, that looks much cooler than this Lord of the Rings game. Can I try that? Tried that. And then I was hooked since then. So that got me into the gaming initially. And then quite quickly, it went from, I was quite lucky that my parents live in Leamington, which is about an hour away from here. But the local club that I joined there had quite a few players that liked tournaments and they were all into that side of the competitive game. And I enjoyed playing the games with them. I got involved there, started going to events and it just snowballed really from there. I was like, this is this is how I enjoy playing 40K. I enjoy the competitive side. I like going to tournaments that's I've made. I've been very lucky that I've made friends all over the UK because of tournaments, and then with the WTC, I've got friends all over the world now from from 40k, uh, which I wouldn't have had if I'd never got involved. So that for me, that's it. Started as a from something I just walking past a store and thought, oh, that looks quite cool. To getting involved, then getting into the competitive scene. Then I found out about team events, and I think once you play your and you've played them, Nick, so you'll know. I think once you play your first team event, it just changes your view of 40k again because it's just such a different experience and then since then there's been a few moments where i've thought about do i carry on is it when they've maybe addition changes and stuff and some of the stuff i didn't like but it's it's a game that i've loved playing for so long that it always seems to draw you back in and even if i think right now the meta is not in a, in a fantastic place 
I still love the game and I still want to keep playing and uh, keep enjoying it. So That's really what it's all about. Yeah, Josh, I actually was thinking about today, right before we were recording this podcast, for those listeners out there, I've known Josh since I was like 15 years old or something. We actually played like at one of my first Adepticons. I think it was 2012 or something like that. It was a long time ago. Yeah. It was, yeah, like a long time ago. And he somehow I won that game. Josh outplayed me by miles, but dice be dice sometimes. <laughs> Just to think that the years I've gotten to know Josh, you know, we played on the same team for Team England like a few years back which we actually won together and now he's on the show coming onto our podcast and 40k has brought us together which i think is a really beautiful thing so i just wanted to highlight that yeah exactly i'd have never met you if i hadn't gone into 40k and that's the i mean it's taken me i've done adepticon i've been to the uh, american team team event before and then of course with the wtc we've traveled to so many different countries playing 40k that and i've met all sorts of people that are really good friends now that i'd never have met if i'd not got involved in 40k so i have to thank 40k for a big percentage of my friendships yeah well that's wholesome yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. It's, a, it's something we hear from from uh, players all around the world. And so I always encourage people, like, if if you're curious about how to get into this or why we do this, that is a huge part of it. Thanks for sharing that. Let's take a quick break. This is for some station identification, and then we'll come back talking about secondaries. See you in a minute. Like what you're listening to? Be sure to check out the second part of this episode, where we break down specifically how our guest plays against all the top armies in the game. Want even more awesome Warhammer content? Check out the War Room. The War Room. You'll gain access to the minds of the best Warhammer players in the world with brand new content every single week. Join our amazing community, elevate your game, and enjoy your hobby more. Hey, everybody. We are back. Thanks for hanging with us. Still got Josh Roberts here, as well as Mr. Nick Manavati. What's up? What's up? We are back. Hi, guys. Yeah, and we're talking about secondaries. We're talking about, you know, Harlequins can be everywhere. You can compete. You can hang in there. But how do you do that? Do you have some secondary choices that you consider like your defaults, your fallbacks? You you take every game and then when, you know, might you audible them when you change them out or offer something else? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the the intention of my list is... I think in any, at least right now, in any list, if you can build into your list a fairly safe to the last, that's always a good option to have in, in your back pocket. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to use it in every game, but I think if you've got a way of building into your list that doesn't too negatively impact the way you want to play or isn't too easy for your opponent to take off you, then I think that is a great secondary to have as a fallback because I think some armies, depending if you're depending on how your opponents built their list is, they don't give you anything for killing vehicles or it's very hard to get grind. The wound count isn't high enough to really score well. They don't necessarily have enough psychers to do some of those objectives where you want to be killing psychers or they don't. Maybe if you want to, do, if you do have a psyche yourself and you want to say interrogate, they have transport options, they can hide their characters in, etc. I do think it's always worth, at least my personal view of building a, if you're trying to compete and win an event is I think you should have a fallback two for sure ideally three of secondaries that no matter what my opponent's army list is or what his my, my opponent is going to do i can play my secondaries or these three and i will score decently well on them so things like to the last engage rnd they're good secondaries to have in your pocket to go if i can't play some of the other ones i can always fall back on those so when I looked at my Harley list, I wanted to make sure that I had some fallback options. So I have a to the last option, which I feel is 
reasonably comfortable list because of the way my list is designed. All the transports are 95 points. The troop units are 95 or 85 points. So it means the two shadow seers at 100 points each could become two of the last options. And they're generally not a combat choice. They're, they're there to cast some powers, do some mortals potentially, depending on what they want to do, but they can sit hidden within either behind terrain or hidden within bubbles of transports and other units screening them. And then my third to the last, which is not ideal, but it, it, it's 110 points, the solitaire, but again, as a character can be hidden if I need that secondary option where I'm like, I, I want to play KG in this certain matchup. I don't want to be throwing away easy options. Well, actually, that character doesn't have to go and blitz off somewhere and try and do a load of damage. It can just go, OK, well, I'm going to sit on objective behind other units. I'll defend these objectives here if somebody gets too close with certain things, but I'm not going to throw it headlong into the middle of my opponent's army, try and kill a key unit and then let him die because I'm playing him in a different way. So I tried to make sure my army could do that as a secondary option. I wanted to make sure I could play Stranglehold or engage and again stranglehold depends on your opponent i think i find depending on what the list is their list is like um so i always wanted engage in in my back pocket in that again for the, the speed and maneuverability of my army and how many units i have engage is quite hard to stop but you scoring at least 12 plus points they can probably stop you scoring the, the 15 but getting a high score and that's still pretty pretty reasonable and again with the nine obsec units if i'm not just going for that shooty game and, and trying to annihilate a certain part of my opponent's army if i am playing kg i can play rnd reasonably well i've got enough troop units and the the harleys have a nice strat where they can put a unit back in reserve to come back on again so you can do the rnd drop in rather than having to reserve and come in turn two or three you can put a unit in reserve on turn three to come in turn four or turn four to come in turn five for example to try and get that last quarter which is often the hardest one to get so getting eight is quite comfortable but getting the 12 again depending on your opponent could be quite reasonable as well so i tried to make sure i had those those designed into the list so no matter what my opponent did i felt comfortable scoring a good number of points on secondaries and then depending on what i was playing i could then start switching those out i have two psychers in the list so I, if i want to do mental interrogation it's quite a good option for me particularly with the eldar's ability to they have a strat which lets you do a psychic action and still cast another power that's a nice option for this list i could also run the harley specific secondary which is instead of to the last it's quite a nice option it's not as good now in my list as it would have been with the void weaver list because you've got to do two of these four options to score your three points a turn, have a unit in your opponent's deployment zone. That's not too hard for the speed of my list. Control an objective you didn't control at the start of your turn. Again, not too hard, but depending on the mission you're playing, sometimes that's limited. Kill two units in the shooting phase can be done with the pistols, but when you had the voids, it was an, it was really easy to do. And they all kill three units in the assault phase. I was never trying to kill three units in the assault phase, but it, it is an option. Uh, I did take that in, I think, two of my games over the weekend so it, it does get, does give me an option there uh, and then there's a few other secondaries that i might look at depending on my opponent but i had those sort of three three to four to always fall back on so maybe let me ask you a, a little bit about stranglehold because stranglehold is, is one of those that i think a lot of players take because they feel like it's attainable but you mentioned a little bit of nuance in when you decide to take that or not can you open that up a little bit for us yeah so i think again it depends on your list but for example i would we have a lot of units Yes, I have a lot of units, but I would be very wary of taking Stranglehold. So in any mission that has six objectives, I think Stranglehold is dangerous. Five objectives is very good in because you have to hold three and more than your opponent. So if, you know, if you're holding three, then you know 
in a five objective mission, you know you've scored your strangle. Six means you've got to hold three and then make sure your opponent's not holding all three. I think that can be risky. I am always more cautious about taking stranglehold in a six objective mission than I am on a five objective mission. And then I think it also depends on your opponent. Uh, so for example, game two of the tournament, I played Nids. He's running a lot of the monsters and he had the objective secured monsters from his one of his bio adaptations. When he can put so much obsec five model obsec monsters on objectives and he can sit there on the objectives in the open because he's he's not worried about that me trying to take stranglehold against him is i think is very risky because if i want to trade i've either got to put a unit of troops and a boat onto an objective to take it off him because i've got to outnumber him or i've got to try and commit a lot to removing multiple things from an objective so in that in that sort of scenario i would rather take a safer secondary option like engage which is much harder for my opponents to stop than the stranglehold but the argument is if your list is something like and i think that's part of the reason tyrannies are doing so well is they are so good at stranglehold that i suspect a nid player if they've designed their list well can probably take stranglehold in every game they play and feel comfortable of scoring at least 12 in it because they just they play that objective domination so well so i think it does depend on your list but at least for where i feel harley's are i think stranglehold is a good option but because i am toughness three dudes with yes the transfer is quite survivable i know that depending on objective placement where where the terrain is and other options it can be risky for me to try and play the stranglehold game against an opponent that can punish me for it it's it's very clear you've put a ton of thought and into your army and i know you personally have been playing harlequins edition through edition through edition so you know your army really intimately and that is great for being able to make at the fly table decisions for i'll take this secondary because i'm in this specific scenario if someone is aspiring to get better at harlequins or trying to learn from this podcast how do you evaluate what second Secondaries you should take in an army so flexible game per game. Yeah, so I mean, I think as I said, I, I think it's always good to have, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be m- the way my list design. You can design your Harleys in different ways, but I do think for Harleys or any army, having a few options that you always feel comfortable falling back on is a great starting point because then you're not you're not too stressed about your your secondaries. Then you can go, okay, well, these are probably the three I'm going to take in most games, and then you can assess the table and go, well, actually, of these three, these two are fine. I don't like this one actually looks like it's going to be difficult to score. Is there a better option? And then you're only worrying about one objective. Um, Whereas if you... If you don't have a full, if you don't really have any fallbacks planned for your army, and you're getting to the table and trying to pick three objectives, I think that's where people can make mistakes because they they're trying to pick too many options. They might miss a clear one that you go, actually, that's already that would have been a good one to take, and they only realise later in the game because they were stressing about multiple options. So I think having your fallback two or three, and it depends on the armies. Different ones have different fallbacks that you though these are probably going to be my go-to secondaries no matter what I play as my baseline. That's a good place to start. But I do think also just don't be too rigid to that that sometimes you, when you get to the table, go, oh, these are my three secondaries. And sometimes you look at it and go, well, actually, if I'd taken this other secondary, I could have made my game my game much easier. You do have to be open to not just rigidly sticking to a one game plan option because you might find that when you're paying a certain opponent that it's actually, it's better to take another secondary. So I think that's that's my view of it is I have my fallback options that I know if, I'm, if my opponent gives me nothing, his list doesn't give away any and there's no clear options, then this is my three I'm going to take or these are my two that I definitely take and then the last one is between it, in the case of this Harley list, it was I was almost always taking RND and engage or stranglehold as two and then it was either to the last or the Harley specific secondary. They were That was my sort of baseline 
But depending on what my opponent was playing, I would then review the list and go, actually, is there something I could take better here? Uh, interrogation, if they've got lots of foot characters and they've not got denies, well, actually, that would be a better secondary than one of my others, for example. Yeah, great breakdown, honestly. It's so fun because week after week, we interview various guests all around the world who are all successful Warhammer players. And some of them are like, I always take these three secondaries. My list only does this. And some of them are like yours, where they're super flexible and, and can change game to game. So part of it is personal preference, too. And like as you mentioned earlier, you want to be aware of all your uh, army options for WTC. I think that speaks to your play style. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. And, I'm, I, and just to elaborate on that point, like you said there, I think some, some armies very clearly build into certain secondaries. So if you're running, um, say, the Thousand Suns and you're running big blocks of Terminators, I know the common build at the moment is like two big blocks of 10 Terminators and then Araman. Like as you're to the last, they, they stick out massively as a well this is a pretty safe secondary to play for my army very few games you probably go into going oh is this risky well no i'm probably it's probably not very risky so i'm going to play and that that secondary probably is something that they take in every single game they play so i think certain lists do build into certain secondaries very clearly um whereas with this harley list i had an idea of the secondaries i wanted to take and made sure i could score decent points on them but i did want some flexibility with actually because of my maneuverability and my options actually i can flex on some of the secondaries if i need to very nice i had a couple more questions about your list and then i know paul has that brutal cutting section he's always so excited about <laughs> i am excited you have mentioned your troop master as the kind of the stock standard the dude you take in light and how crazy his threat ranges are could you just break down exactly what this troop master does yeah for sure so the troop from the troop master i mean of course if you're running troop masters within a pure harley list they have to be a warlord if you have one so he's my warlord uh, he's the player of light which gives him an extra attack extra strength when he charges and he also gets a uh, six inch heroic which which is big that can catch people out Six inch heroic is always a powerful ability, particularly with again combined with the way Harleys can move through things, so they're harder to block out with their with their movement. And then from a threat range point of view, uh, you take a foot in the future, which is the other warlord trait, which just means that instead of advancing d6, it's three plus d3. And then when he charges, he he gets a, an extra six inches to his charge. Uh, so you still roll your two d6 a charge, but you've got that extra six. So when you're if you're starting in a transport, then you're you're getting out of a transport, so you've got you've got Movement, movement eight plus your three inches out plus you're guaranteed four to six inches with your advance and then you're getting a 2d6 plus six inch charge it just means that the the threat and people can always remember this he cannot declare a charge more than 12 inches away because he doesn't have a rule that allows him to declare a charge even though his potential charge is 18 uh he can't declare a charge that is 13 inches away or 14 inches away you, you still he still is it within that parameter like most other units are unless they have a special rule that allows them to charge further but it does mean that basically anything he declares a charge against within that 12 inch radius he needs he's getting six inches towards it already so on 2d6 the most he's going to need is a six to hit his charge so you can he can declare those long charges and actually be reasonably comfortable of making those long charges because of that warlord trait that's given him that extra movement yeah super destructive uh for messing up like gun lines tagging some vehicles assassinating a key character or just messing up like a very key unit he's very good for that kind of thing he's getting seven attacks at strength six when he charges flat three damage and then he's getting full rerolls to wound as well so he's pretty reliable in the damage he does and he has a fusion pistol on top of that so he can shoot that's your saying of course because light 
Earlier in the episode, you mentioned that there are some things that your your opponents would be cautious of, but you would never consider really uh, devoting this character to that situation. What are things that you do, like high priority, you know you could trade or potentially come out the victor? Well, I think I think that's the thing. I mean, if people hear the threat range, and then you go, then they see the flat three damage and the, the full reroll swoon, the twos to hit, and you've probably it, they have to factor in. You've got some, you may still have some Harlequin rerolls available, so any ones to hit, you could reroll those uh, if you need to to make sure you're getting the number of attacks through. So I think people just do worry about, and the way you can move through um, with the Harley flip belts, and the way they can move through terrain as if it's not there. They they don't fly, so they can't charge fly or anything like that but they can they can move through things that people normally would be able to block it does just change the way people position units and they they worry about okay actually if he gets first turn and he say i've got a transport with a key character in that he nukes the transport with fusion pistols i can't it's hard to screen this character off because of the way he moves and he's getting plus six to his charge so he's going he's got such a large charge movement even if he has to charge within that 12 inch range so i think that's what makes people uh, worry about where he is but his uh, his limitations of course are that he, the ap is only two armor of contempt hurts that now with the new in the new meta so he goes down to ap1 so things like even though he's three damage terminators etc i think i had players that were more worried about him because he's flat three damage than they should have been with things like terminators because they always oh, he's, he's, he, every attack that I fail, he, I lose a terminate. I was like, well, you, I'm, I'm not going to correct them. They can that is true, but when you're down to AP one, it's not that scary for a terminator on a on a three up save. You're going to pass. You should pass most of your saves. So I think he, he has some great targets to go into, but he is limited in his other ways. Uh, so people just have to sometimes think about. It's one of those. If you always with those threat targets, if you have the time and you can just work it out in your head, run the maths through your head, and then often you'll you'll know the right decision of okay, that's actually not as scary as i thought it was sometimes the key you read out the key numbers and but you actually don't necessarily work it out and go well actually okay he hits six times he's going to wound five i'm going to pass three to four of those on a terminator i lose one or two terminators and then i probably kill him i probably kill him back oh it's not it's actually not as scary as i thought it was a player Um, knows when they're not good at rolling threes man yes yeah well that might be the case they might be thinking they're going to roll all ones and two so um (laughs) but you got you got to plan for the the worst case scenario here don't yes, be paralyzed yeah. by it. Don't be afraid of these things. This thing is a good lesson. But sometimes you, you got to go with what the numbers say, and, and you're exactly right. But uh, you know, some players just, just they can feel it, feel it coming. I mean, I, yes, I trust yeah. that. And I trust that. That's that's the that's the balancing act, isn't it? Sometimes you go because yes, you have to make that decision. You go well. Actually, the math say it should do this, but if it goes wrong, it's going to really hurt my game. Do I need to be in that position? No. Okay. Well, then I'll deploy slightly further back, and then you've probably made the right call. But sometimes the reverse of that is well, actually. Even if it goes horribly wrong, that's he doesn't know he's. He, I don't know if he's going first yet or not. And if I do go first, this is going to be a massive problem for him. That unit's positioning. Well, actually, I should take that risk. So it is. It, it's a. It's a balancing act. All those decisions from in-game decisions about which units you target, all the way through to deployment decisions. They sometimes they can be small, but they they can have a big impact on the the overall game. And lots of small things can add up over time for sure too. Yeah, exactly. I noticed you mentioned that you were struggling, not struggling with, but like coping with the fact that you're AP2 on this Troopmaster and your whole army is relatively low AP. Shuriken cannons are AP1, let's roll sixes. Your combat troops aren't really decked out for close combat. So how do you actually crack armor of contempt? I, I want to keep the matches for the matchup section, but like in general, I, I imagine dark is, is where I've been heading with Harlequins because the AP seems so critical right now. You seem to be flying in the face of that. So what's that about? Yeah, so, so I think that's the choice you make with Harleys now. So I would have said 
pre-balance update, light was the clear, more powerful option. With the Wavoid weavers were, why would you not run light? Just the, the options that you have and the ability to be able to go move the full movement with your advance and still shoot as if stationary. Of, of course you go that way. I think now there is a real choice to be made, depending on your play style, of do you want to play dark or light Harlequins? The Twilight Harlequins, unfortunately, are still upset in the corner because they're not getting any love. But the dark or light Harlequins now is a real, a real choice. You go, okay, well, do I want to lean heavier into the combat because I get to fight on death for free? My AP gets a boost. Um, then for sure, dark is the way. The reason I went light is I still feel, even though all those benefits are nice, I still actually think Harlequins are more of a shooting army than a combat army. I think the combat is clearing up sort of a mop-up option after you've done damage with the shooting because even with the extra AP in the Harleys, if you start stacking out all the, the troop with combat weapons, they start becoming more and more expensive. They're still only strength four. Marines are often toughness four or maybe toughness five. You're winning on fives. The troop master from last book to this book, losing the full rerolls to wound in combat, becoming reroll ones to wound all the time, is actually, I think, a big loss for the Harley combat build. So you, you're just not as reliable of actually doing the damage in combat, whereas I felt the shooting, being able to go 22, and still use my fusions, still use the neuros, and then mop up later with some combat options. I felt was this the stronger way to play for the build I wanted to play. But I think if you do want to go down more combat routes and so maybe bigger troop units with more combat weapons, or you want to run, I think, for example, the bikes, if you're going to run the Harley bikes, again, their combat, the AP fighting on death for free, that really plays into those units bigger than the the light does, I feel. So I think it's it's a conscious choice now. Which which route do you want to go down? I felt that being able to only go 16 and shoot my pistols rather than 22 was just not enough of a threat range. And because I'd invested in all the pistols, including the neuros, I think the light was still the way to go. But I accepted that combat was not going to be my primary damage source. It was more going to be okay, clear up chaff or mop up. And then that's the reason why with the units that I went for the troop is I didn't go all combat heavy weapons on them. I just had most of the units just had the two combat weapons and they were really for the two strats they gave me. So it was to do mortal wounds when I charge and then do mortal wounds when I attack. So the idea is that I'm actually, I'm not trying to use the AP. If I'm going to go into combat, it's I've shot you with guns that are, the fusions actually do have a decent AP uh, at AP4 and then the, the neuros are just doing straight mortals there's no no ap to worry about there and then in combat again i'm doing if i'm trying to finish off unit i'm just doing more mortals again i'm not relying on the ap well, that's a really interesting take on Harlequins. I, I've seen people do really well with shooting builds of Harlequins. It, it still makes no sense to me, but you are helping to eliminate it. I like it. <laughs> so we're here. We're trying to demystify that. Exactly. And so speaking of demystify, uh, this is a segment that we talk about. A cool combo, a brutal and cunning segment. Do you have something that you that you use for this army that you keep some command points in your back pocket? You know, something you always want to try, you think is kind of like your, your surefire thing to go to to make an impact in the game. So I don't think there's any one game-changing combo that I've been trying to use with this list. Uh, but I do think there's a few, like I just mentioned there, The I think actually the way that the combat interacts, it costs you two CP because it's two separate strats, but being able to, one of your five-man troops, after you've done all your shooting damage, to go in and then in the charge phase, do a number of mortal wounds, and then in the assault phase, do some more mortal wounds again. I think that that caught a lot of people out, that the fact that actually that you're doing two sources of mortal wounds and the, the other advantage it does as well is it's doing them in different phases so it can catch out things like... Uh, 
phoenix lords who can only take certain amounts of wounds in in certain phases so i can do some in the charge phase some in the combat phase the same with things like satan or other units not that you see a lot of necrons at the moment but anything that has abilities to stop damage uh, over a certain amount in a certain phase being able to do it in different phases is quite nice so i think that's a that was a commonly used two strats that were used regularly together and then other than that i mean the the redeploy and nick will know this because i know he's been playing eldar being able to redeploy is such a powerful ability the eldar strat lets you do that one of my faves <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's one of the best i think any any army particularly with an army that moves so fast as well being able to redeploy say three units on the line if you know you're going first and then move 22 or you can deploy things on the line and then move them back when you know your opponent's going first it's such an such a strong ability so i think that is a i, I think i'd be pro- i think i use that in every single game I, maybe one game i didn't use it of the six i think one five games i probably used it so going first or second it just gives you so many options yeah i would say i use it probably five or six times out of an eight round tournament when i play yeah yeah it's it's so strong and then the other one for me is just for that secondary being able to take a unit off and bring it back on after the effective turn two or turn three deep strike options is quite a nice ability to just just, people often run out of things to screen their back quarter if they're trying to screen you out from rod etc or sorry r&d as it's now called so that just helps your secondary score a little bit better so i think they were the ones i would say i used most but i wouldn't say there was one like knockout strat that is is the key but if i had to pick one strat that redeploy is probably the strongest one let's talk about how to identify when to use that like nick you just mentioned you use it five six times over the course of a, of a long tournament like when maybe maybe shorter to say when you wouldn't consider it yeah i mean i think there's 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 two there's two ways you can view that strat maybe it depends on how you're intending to tackle your opponent so you can either i find for, for example particularly in this harlequin list i've got there's a few characters and there is one unit of troop that isn't in a boat but i had eight transports full of eight units so it was quite nice and that you could go okay on this maybe this flank right on the deployment line, I can deploy three boats. And then if I'm going second, well, I know those boats are actually in danger now, but I know I'm going to, I'm, I can redeploy those three boats out of the way and I'm, I'm fine. Or on the reverse, I've deployed those three boats on the front line. And then actually now I know I'm going first. Well, actually I want to over, I want to overwhelm that flank. Well, I'll redeploy three of the other boats, which were maybe safer deployed further back. So now I've got six boats on the line right where I want to go and then I can put all six boats 22 inches and then you've got all the fusion all the neuros in range where you're they weren't going to be in range otherwise without that deployment so the fact that you can use it that the duality of being able to either defensively save yourself um, from units that you've maybe deployed on the line and then bring them back, or if you know you're going first and you've already deployed a number of units on the line, and then you can support those forward deployed units with other units that now are now on the line because you know, well, okay, they can be out in the open on the front because I'm going to move them anyway before my opponent can react. That strength is why I think you're going to use you use it so often with a with the Harleys for sure. The way my list is designed because the number of the way the boats work, it sort of, it fits that really well. But it's very similar with Eldar. If you're running the jet bikes or you're running Hawks or you're running other units that the redeployment can be so powerful. Yeah, strong. Nick, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or in your own experience. Yeah, I would say the only time I don't use the redeploy, uh, and I use in the same way Josh does, if I'm going first, I'll usually get way more aggressive and deploy optimally to wreck my opponent on turn one as best as possible while being safe. And going second, I'll redeploy super defensively so they basically just can't hit me on turn one. 
And the only time I don't really do is redeploy is if my strategy overall is one where I'm not really interacting much and I'm just going to like throw a Viper out or in Josh's case, like a Star Weaver and play like a sit back and trade game for a while. In that case, I don't need to really move my army. I'm just going to hide behind walls and bide my time for a while. That's the only strategy where I think I don't redeploy. In my experience, I got you. Yeah, yeah for breaking I think that I can agree with that too. If, you, if you're playing a cagey trading game, you you probably are not using it as much. But otherwise, it's such a powerful ability that it's it's one of the key strats in that Eldar book for sure. I really like that through your the entire brutal Bacon section because there is not one clear strat for you, and I think that's very fair to say. But you you highlighted all the strats that move your army around. The redeploys, your deep striker, just lets you play in in more dimensions than. The, the linear just run straight at your opponent or run away from your opponent. And I think that's awesome because ultimately that's what your army's trying to do. It's trying to position itself around the table to optimize its score. I'm super excited to get into part two because that's where we're going to talk about how you actually do this very specifically in each individual matchup. Paul, do you have any other questions for this one? No, that's pretty much a great segue. I want to do and remind everyone this is only part one of this conversation. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can get access to part two. Each and every week, we go into how these armies play against certain matchups. Not only do you get to learn how you play against those, but if you play one of those factions, you kind of learn what to look out for against armies like this in a very deep level. So, gentlemen, we're going to pause here for a couple of minutes, and then we'll see you all on the other side. Bye. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com